Hey guys, Bear Grylls here, just to say, super excited for Charles Thorpe's podcast coming soon. You guys are going to love this. What a great guy he is and so many great stories. So enjoy these and remember, above all, never give up. Now, I personally believe that there's nothing better than a great adventure, whether it's to another country or into the backyard. It can have an amazing ability to change not just the way that we see the world, but also the way that we see ourselves. That is exactly what you're going to hear about from our incredible guests. On Great Adventures, I'm going to be hanging out with actors, athletes, thought leaders, and of course explorers, some old friends, and some new, to discuss how being adventurous benefited their lives. My name is Charles Thorpe. For over a decade, I've been chasing down epic stories professionally for magazines and television shows, and now I'm bringing those conversations here. This is on a mountaintop in Chile. And you go there and you end up living nocturnally for a period of days. This not only changes you sort of biophysically, to commune with the cosmos in that way can change it. That was astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson and his time for Great Adventures. Neil, it's so great to chat with you. Such a fan of Cosmos. It does a great job of bringing the universe into our homes, and especially now when a lot of people are on their couches, not feeling the ability to be as curious as they usually are, at least out in the world, they can sort of do it in that direction. So what does it feel like for you to have Cosmos coming out at this time? Yeah, who could have possibly imagined that here we are in a, in a scenario, is it much different from the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still? right? I mean, there's an an event and everyone stops to grok this event. And they realize that in order to fully grasp it, it requires some level of science literacy, some understanding of viruses, some some part of you is going to have to say, I'm going to listen to a scientist or a medical professional and base my conduct on their advice. This is something that we seem to have drifted from over the decades, especially over recent years, where expertise in general, but scientists in particular, it's as though we're just some other demographic in society like anybody else, and I'll choose to listen to you if I care to. Otherwise, I'll listen to this person who I just met in the street or, or this website that agrees with my philosophies be they cultural, political, religious, Mm. economic. So maybe this is a point of awakening for civilization. Maybe. I I think the the jury is still out to determine whether it will land that way, but it certainly has the potential for us to awaken from our stupor. How has it been characterized where we post-fact generation, right? Yes. Yeah, facts do matter, kind of, you know, (laughs) and there are things that are objectively true. And let's figure out how to understand what those are. So I think Cosmos could not have come out at a better time. A better time not only to understand what role science plays in our lives, and will continue to play, but everyone is homebound. And so what better occasion is there as you introduce this segment for people to sit on the couch and embrace something that's airing in prime time 
across the country, and then it goes around the world for the remaining six days of the week, 170 countries. And we're all on lockdown, the whole world. There it is. National Geographic, yeah, they do such an amazing job of getting this kind of programming out there. Going to what you said before, more people now know what microns are than ever before. (laughs) There are so many things out there, particles, bacteria, us as journey people exploring those places could be useful at a time like this, you know, sort of expanding our, our site, our whole site of the world. Yeah. I mean, I've tried, to, I've tried to help a little bit in my Twitter stream, for example. Most of my Twitter stream is just sort of random, try to make you smile, maybe laugh. But then now that I have you, now that I have your attention, by the way, this is what an exponential is, mm. right? And so I'll toss in some very serious scientific concepts or perspectives that I want you to pay attention to. I tweet without even mentioning the coronavirus. I just said, by the way, you know, if algae is in the act of covering a lake and it doubles every day and you go away for a month and come back and half the lake is covered with algae, How much longer do you have to wait before the entire lake is covered with algae? A typical answer coming from our linear brains honed on the plains of the Serengeti is we got to wait another month. But no, it doubles every day. So you just have to wait 24 hours before the entire lake is covered. That's exponential thinking. That's exponential thinking. It's something that we don't have training for. Our brains aren't wired for that. So I've been trying to give these examples to prep people to then understand and embrace the predictions for what a virus is versus what it will be, particularly if you don't take precautions. I'd love to hear early Neil, what was that first opportunity to sort of see the universe, to see the world? I think you bought a telescope pretty early on. Yeah, yeah. I'm, first I'm, time to peak. Thanks for calling it early Neil. I like that. <laughs> Early Neil, all right. Uh, Pre-Jurassic Neil. That's yes, exactly, like. exactly. So uh, my family, my parents, my brother and sister, what felt like every weekend, but it was probably maybe only one or two weekends a month, we would go on a trip to a cultural institution. We'd go on a car trip. We'd go to a sporting event together. We'd go to museums, zoos, aquariums, art museums among them, uh, science museums. And I remember that as the occasion where my parents were trying to enlighten us. Although now that I've been a parent, it was probably just occasions where they tried to run us and get us tired. So then when we got home, we go straight to bed. So as a minimum, it has dual purpose. One of the trips we took when I was nine was to the Hayden Planetarium. And my first time in such a space. And I think we all remember our first time in a planetarium because the room is so odd with a round ceiling and a comfortable chair and a deep voice coming from the heavens, the planetarium director's voice. Um, There's a whole class in director school. (laughs) You learn learn how to speak. (laughs) Um, We're in there and then the lights dim. And I grew up in New York City, for goodness sake, as we don't have a relationship with the night sky. There's no sky. There's the moon, yeah. Maybe a couple of planets, if you even know they're planets. That's it. 
and the sun in the daytime. So for me to go in there and see the stars come out, I was starstruck. And to just grasp the immensity of it all and the endlessness of it all, and to be in the company of the expertise of the scientists on staff and the educators who did such a brilliant job communicating the science. I said to myself, if I'm ever an educator, that's the kind of educator I want to be. And if I'm ever a scientist, that's the kind of body of knowledge I want to have command of so that I can get closer to the universe than ever before. And so from then on, I was hooked. First telescope on my 12th birthday. So take a couple of years for me to organize these thoughts into my head that it could be something I would do for the rest of my life. And my first sort of real backyard telescope was when I was 15, where I saved up money for that. That was a larger telescope rather than the starter telescope that my parents bought me. And so as we were chatting offline, I think a telescope is sort of standard issue for any family. All right, given the stuff you spend money on, you can get an entry-level telescope for not much money, and then you bring it out on a clear night. It's something you can do. By the way, I lived in the city, so I didn't have a backyard, but what did I have? I had the roof of my apartment building. There we go. That's my backyard. There right, we so go. My sister would graciously, although I would learn not so graciously, <laughs> help me. <laughs> she did it. She remembers it as uh, periods of servitude. Uh, help me. <laughs> I carry the expensive part. She would carry the heavy mount and the tripod. Uh, go to the roof, set up, and uh, that was my backyard. So I think we should all have one of these. Yeah. And I don't think I'm asking too much of civilization to do that. Absolutely not. I think also as an expert in your field, I can only imagine whenever I, I travel, I go to a city that does have a telescope there. I try by whatever means to look through it. I have, I just have to. As, as high night at, a, at an observatory. Exactly, exactly. Yes. As powerful as possible. I can only imagine you've had a number of those opportunities. I'd love to hear about one of those opportunities, whether anywhere around the world. I think the Hayden Planetarium does a lot of partnerships with different you know, museums and organizations. And so there's a lot of cross-country and international diplomacy in those situations. Can you remember one moment looking through a telescope outside of the city, outside of New York, that really moved you maybe because of the experience or because of the thing that you were able to see through that telescope? Yeah, it's a great question. So that question lands a little differently for me because I used very large professional telescopes for my PhD thesis. This is on a mountaintop in Chile. And you go there and you end up living nocturnally for a period of days. So this not only changes you sort of biophysically, but you realize that the night is your target of interest, not anybody, anything that we normally think of that goes on in the daytime. So to commune with the cosmos in that way is something that uh, can change you. By the way, Today, we have what's called service observing, way more efficient than anything we did in the old days. How does it work? There's a telescope operator sitting there alone at the telescope, and you dial up coordinates and send them to that operator, and they point the telescope, and they send you back the data. You never even leave your desk 
Okay. So there's a very, you know, I don't want to sound like the old timer on the porch. (laughs) Back in my day. (laughs) Right, right. Walked uphill both ways, all that. You know, I don't want to sound like that, but I know I am. (laughs) When I say the field, I think, has lost a bit of the romance of what it is to meet the universe on its own terms. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to a mountaintop and these mountains are typically high enough so that if there's a low fog that rolls in, you are surrounded by fog and the clouds are below you. And you feel like you're on Mount Olympus or something (laughs) because your part of the island or the, the mountain rises up above and it's you and the universe clouds. You don't even know that the rest of the world is there. So that's a certain sort of humbling, beautiful, life-changing, communing with the cosmos in this way. That's beautiful. Do you remember what celestial bodies you actually got to observe through that telescope? The act of observing, we still call it that. What's your observing run? What did you observe? But observe, the origin of that word is so linked to our eye and our retina and our brain vision, sensory pairing. But in modern times, okay, the telescope gives its information to a digital detector that gets read off and then it goes into your computer. And then you take the raw data home, process it, and then deduce something about the universe. And we don't use these large telescopes to obtain pretty pictures of anything. In fact, most of the data we get are not very pleasing to look at. The Hubble images that we all know and love were obtained as a very um, a concerted effort. Realizing that the Hubble can take beautiful pictures, they decided to allocate time to do so, even if those beautiful pictures were not serving specific scientific interests. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so that's my preamble. Uh, the fact is I was in the Southern Hemisphere in our summertime, Southern Hemisphere winter, because the center of the Milky Way galaxy passes directly overhead. And all the data that fed into my PhD thesis was obtained from the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And that's part of the romance of that, where I'd have my detector and it would see stars. These are stars that are about 30,000 light years away. And I just imagine the life of that photon it goes 30,000 years. You, if you could watch it, you'd watch it for 30,000 years, and then it ends its life on my detector. <laughs> so then I thought to myself, okay, is that fair to the photon? Because if it didn't hit my detector, it might have just keep going, might have exited the galaxy and continued. Oh, wow. Or it could have slammed into somebody's buttocks on a beach who, <laughs> who's out there at night. I mean, there are a lot of other a lot of other fate this photon could have had. We could have just hit the mountainside and then would have contributed no knowledge to our understanding of the universe. So that's how I justified to myself the act of snatching photons from their journeys because they gave their lives for a deeper understanding of the cosmos. I think that, I think that's a poetic ending for any photon. I had another experience bordered on a religious experience, I would say, that had nothing to do with what I saw through the telescope. It was visiting the 100-inch, which is the diameter of the main mirror, the 100-inch Mount Wilson telescope in California, okay, just outside of Los Angeles. Very active telescope at a time before Los Angeles was the light-polluted, air-polluted place. Right. That it, just 
being in the same space as that telescope was like a religious experience for me. Why? Because that's where Edwin Hubble discovered the existence of galaxies vastly increasing our understanding of the size of the universe. The universe wasn't just the stars of the night sky comprising the Milky Way. No, the Milky Way was an island universe among countless other island universes as they were poetically referenced in the day. These are entire other galaxies, and there's at least 100 billion of them in the universe. And not only that, using that same telescope, he discovered that the universe was expanding all in the 1920s, a watershed decade for science, not only for a knowledge of our place in the universe, but that was the decade that the major tenets of quantum physics were revealed as the, a fundamental way that nature operates on its smallest scales. So I just felt like I was communing back in time, feeling the surge of enlightenment for having made such a discovery. Great Adventures is lucky to have partners that share our love for a good story, like Whistlepig Whiskey. They're American rice perfected in the beautiful Vermont countryside. I've been to their farm, I've seen the process, and a lot of care goes into creating each glass. It's also the perfect nightcap after a day in the wild. Check them out on Instagram, at Whistlepig Whiskey. A lot of people are stuck inside right now. We mentioned one thing. I want to talk about a couple of things that are getting you through this time right now as a scientist, as a curious person, so that other people might be able to sort of glean a little information from that. So when it comes to telescopes, I imagine you have one that you've sorted out for yourself that's a little more high grade, but where would you recommend people start to look when it comes to telescopes or what range or what? Yeah, uh, I, I give an unorthodox reply to that and say, you don't start with telescopes. Buy a good pair of binoculars and then sit out in a dark park or on the countryside or a, a waterfront. Binoculars, you don't need training to aim binoculars, whereas you do with telescopes, right? Because you're, you're looking in from, a, from the side and the optics double reflect it. And modern telescopes, they, they, sometimes they align for you. In my day, we had to align. <laughs> but now they have computers that help you out, that's fine. But binoculars are much cheaper as an entry-level bit of optics. They're much cheaper than a telescope, and they do double duty. Mm. If ever the sports season kicks back in, you take it to sporting <laughs> events or to, to the theater if you're, mm. if you're in the cheap seats in the upper deck. So I own like four pairs of binoculars of all different sizes. And if there's a quick thing I want to check, I will run outside and check it out. You would be surprised how much more interesting something looks through binoculars than with the unaided eye particularly things like the crescent moon or the half moon, where shadows are their longest. The least interesting thing in the night sky is the full moon. <laughs> it is face lit directly. Yes. So there's no sh nothing cast a shadow. Yes. You have no sense of three-dimensionality of anything. So what you want is the moon at some other phase, and you look along what's called the terminator, the boundary between light and dark. So you start with, with binoculars. Then... When you're done with it, if you're, really, if you're really eager and curious, you'll be done with the binoculars in a few months, then you go out and get a first telescope. Mm. And it's not an easy answer because yeah. you have to ask yourself, do you want it to be portable? So that if you're gonna, do you want to just be able to just fold it up, put it in the back seat of your car and drive somewhere with it? 
or not. He's I want a powerful telescope. Right. Everybody I know whose first telescope is a powerful telescope, <laughs> they lost all interest in packing that thing up and setting it up and getting the, the and they just lost all that interest in it. So it's not an easy one size fits all. Yeah, it takes a little bit of a determination there. So what are a couple last things that you're using right now in this period? Do you, are you reading a book? Are you watching any sort of television program? Do you have an app that you're using regularly? I tend to read nonfiction rather than fiction, and I reserve television and movies for fiction. That's just how I've divided my personal kingdom yes. of exposure to entertainment. <laughs> Here's a bit of advice that I learned only recently, and I think it's obvious when you think of it, even though you don't want it to be true. It's if you want to be more creative, then become less productive. You don't want that to be true, but it kind of is, <laughs> right? You can have a day where well, I got did my hundred emails and I went shopping and I did my laundry and I, I did I cooked dinner and I, and I did this and I did that. And I, I, and okay, did you create anything today? You've been busy. And so for people who have a sort of creative urge or even people who never had a creative urge, this is an occasion to sit down and reflect in your own head. Is there an art project you neglected or some books you had wanted to read where you have to use your imagination? Are there some arts and crafts projects? Are there, I mean, just think of the creativity that we all had as children that just was gone, just gone mm -hmm. because we've been performing tasks as adults. And so for me, I'll be using this time to write significant progress on some books that I have been thinking about for the last 10 years. <laughs> uh, they've been percolating in my head. I've been waiting yes. for the occasion where I can sit down and devote many, many hours in one stretch. Ask any writer. You can't write between while you're waiting for the bus, you know, and between you have to allocate significant slots of time. And so, so that's what I, I haven't done that yet, but I will be doing that possibly beginning as early as this weekend. Neil, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate the time, and I'm sure we'll get to do this again soon. I hope so. Excellent. Thanks for listening, guys. If you like what you heard, hit subscribe and leave a quick review on iTunes. Suggest it to a friend who could use a little travel inspiration. If you have a travel question or suggestion on someone I should chat with, just hit me up on my social channels, at Charles Thorpe and at Adventure Podcast. New episodes will be dropping every Friday, so keep checking in for the next. Until then, safe travels.